0: John chapter 1, verse 1, reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. About 5 o'clock this morning, I was lying there in bed, Wide awake, which is pretty rare for me. And I was wondering as I lay there, I was thinking about tonight and thinking about all the things that I've been studying and and considering the scriptures. And I, I honestly asked the question. I was lying there, I said, "Lord, am I am I reading too much of Jesus into the scriptures?" And the Lord said, "Rick, you're not reading me into the scriptures. I'm already there." <laughs> And it was, just a, it was a great reality check for me with the Father because the reality is, gang, Bible study is, is so much more than an intellectual pursuit. It is not research and analysis of a book. That is not why we open up the Word of God. We open up the Bible to spend time in fellowship with Jesus. And truly, if we approach it with the right mindset, with that attitude, the Word is living and active. And the Spirit speaks to us through the Word. I'm not saying He's limited to the Word. The Holy Spirit speaks to us in many ways, but always through Jesus. Remember, He spoke to the fathers through the prophets in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days He has spoken to us through His Son. But the Word itself, so often diminished these days, there's a dynamic here that we need to recognize. And that is that Jesus fellowships with us when we get into His Word. And I invite you to look for that tonight, Keep it in mind as we study that we are here not to receive head knowledge. Again, not to stay in the soul, but to stay in the place of the Spirit and to fellowship with Jesus as you would fellowship with a group of friends in your home, as you would sit down with a dear and trusted friend and talking about life, about the things of life. We sang the song, I'll awaken the dawn singing the praises, of my God, I will lie down at night with you here by my side talking the day through with you. That's the kind of relationship that, isn't that what you want with Jesus? A real, tangible, actual, walking, living, breathing fellowship with Jesus. Well, that's what He says we can have. And that's why we open up the Word. And if we open it for any other reason, we're going to miss it. So let me pray one more time. We'll get into the Word and let's fellowship with Jesus. Jesus, we are here to fellowship with you tonight. As every time we gather. This is about fellowship with our Savior, our Christ, our Messiah, our King, and our Friend. And so, while we learn more of you, see more of you in the Scriptures, understand you better, may our hearts be full of this time spent with you. Take us in this place of fellowship. Hold us near Jesus. And may we walk out of here more aware of You than when we walked in. And teach us, Spirit of Christ, all that You would have for our hearts tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, John writes. Well, tonight we finish the beginning of the Sefer Tehillim, The book of praises. We finished tonight book one of the book of praises, of the psalms. Now you may recall way back 40 chapters ago when we started into the psalms that chapter one, we talked about this a little bit. The, The book of praises, the psalms, are broken into five different books. And this is the end of book one. Book one takes us through chapter 41. Book two will begin on Sunday, chapter 42. And as we come out of book one, the beginning, into book two, which parallels, by the way, these five books parallel the five books of the Torah. Of the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We have just finished the beginning book. And now we're going to head into the Exodus book, which is a lot of Psalms dealing with deliverance. 150 Psalms divided into five books, and we come to the end of the beginning tonight. We conclude book one. And we end where we began. Because where we began was with Jesus. We started off with Jesus, the Word who was with God and who was God in the beginning. And He's there in the beginning of the book of Psalms as well. Psalm 1, remember we talked about the blessed man of Psalm 1. How blessed is the man? whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And the reality is when you read that, there's no man who can meditate on the, on the law of the Lord day and night. Only Jesus could do that. And while it is something for us to be called to, to strive for, to live for, to, to meditate on the Word of God all the time, the reality is that the blessed man is Jesus. Psalm 1 begins right off with Jesus. Psalm 2 takes it from there as we read about and study the Anointed One. The Anointed King, the One that God set on His throne in Zion. Today I've set Him on my throne. You know, the Lord in heaven laughs as the nations rage. I have my King. And His name is Jesus. That was Psalm 2. We continued on, and I'm just going to skip over some of these. But we heard His cry from Calvary in Psalm 16. That I truly believe was a cry of Christ. A thousand years before it would happen, to the heart of David, that He would write it down, that as Jesus is crucified, He draws us back to that mictum, Psalm 16, which is His heart cry from the cross. If you weren't there and studied that with us, go back and listen to it. Go back and just read it. You hear the cry of the Christ in Psalm 16. We talked about the Good Shepherd's cross. Psalm 22, that graphic, physical description of Jesus' crucifixion. We talked about the Great Shepherd's crook. Psalm 23, how Jesus is the Great Shepherd now who walks us through this life. Psalm 24, we talked about the Chief Shepherd's crown. The coming of Jesus as described in Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King may come in. In Psalm 31, we felt not the physical anguish of the cross, but the emotional anguish of His betrayal as He pours out His heart again through David, His servant. And all of that, I'm just, again, skimming the surface, but we draw all the way to Psalm 40. And we didn't have to read Jesus into any of those psalms, did we? He was right there. Right there waiting for us. One of the wonders of walking through the Hebrew Scriptures, and if you've been here any amount of time you know this, is how present Jesus is in the Old Testament. Or what I prefer to call the Older Testament. That Jesus is there in every page of Scripture because all Scripture points to Him. And He's going to clarify that once again for us tonight in Psalm 40. From a historical perspective, Psalm 40 is David's psalm of recovery. It's in a package of psalms, 38, 39, 40, and 41. Actually, all four can go together very well. Because they speak of David recognizing his sin and just coming apart at the seams physically. The physical ailment. We talked about that last week. If you recall, probably an STD. Probably something David was dealing with from an old sin, a past sin, that now has come back up and literally puts him on the brink of death David almost dies as he's writing these psalms and describing this this horrible sickness this illness the sickness of his sin in Psalm 38 and 39 well Psalm 40 David is in recovery and it's a psalm of joyful recovery it's the psalm of the healed or better the psalm of the revived I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and He set my feet upon a rock making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. I just love how this starts out. I waited patiently. You know, it's said that old doctors never die, they just lose their patience. (laughs) Question, are you a good patient or a bad one? Are you the kind of person that if you happen to need to go into the hospital, doctors and nurses are, are, are already you know, stocking up on morphine for themselves <laughs> because of the way you are? Or are you one of those that they enjoy attending? Are you a decent patient? Are you a patient person? Patients is incredibly important. In fact, it is absolutely key to spiritual recovery. There are so many times in my life where I have, perhaps I've sinned and I'm dealing with the outcome of that, the consequence, the fallout. And I want it fixed now. And David says, I waited patiently. And there are so many times where we are in panic mode, crisis mode, and we say, Lord, fix it now. Lord, you've got to help us now. Lord, I don't know how we're going to make this work now. And he says, patience. Just be patient. I waited patiently for the Lord. In the parable of the sower, Jesus describes the seed as the Word of God. Being cast on four different soil types, which are all representative of the receptivity of the heart. And in Luke 8.15, of the good soil, the good heart, He says, These are the ones who have heard the Word in an honest and good heart. They hold it fast and bear fruit with patience. Patience. I waited patiently for the Lord. It's vital to recovery. Because when you're in recovery, truly, there's not a whole lot else you can do but just wait for it to be over. Wait to get your strength back. And the older we get, the longer that just seems to take. Patience, however, is not something that I am looking for, praying for, or hoping that others get. It's what I need. Anytime you find yourself wishing someone else was more patient, wishing someone else in your household, your family, your spouse, your kids, your your mother-in-law, whatever. No offense to Sharon. If you're ever in that place, remember what Paul said, and I believe speaks to each one of us personally. Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience... Show tolerance for one another in love. You know, if we memorized Ephesians 4-2, our marriages would be better for it. Show patience, show tolerance for one another in love. The Lord has granted my wife a lot of patience. She's very tolerant with me. And that is key to our successful marriages. We are all of us patients in recovery. And we've been healed, we've been saved, but we are currently, in this life, we're in recovery. We're in recovery of the new life we've been given. But we still have some old flesh that's dogging us. We still get run down. We still get exhausted. We still get frustrated. We still deal with sin. But we're in recovery. And the absolute and complete and total recovery is guaranteed, it's promised for us. The life of the patient, persevering saint, gang, will result in others who see our recovery so that they too may recover to a new life. And sometimes that's what our pains and sicknesses and problems are all about. That's why the Lord keeps us in the recovery room, earth, a little longer than maybe we'd want to be. We're here in recovery because as we recover, others might also recover the life which is lost to sin. Philippians 1.29, Paul said, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. 1 Peter 1:20 Peter says if when you do what is right and suffer for it you patiently endure it and this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you leaving an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Guess what? You're going to suffer. You're still going to have the aches and pains of human life. You're going to struggle through it. Why? Paul says in Romans 8:18, 8, "I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us." We suffer now for glory then. We taste glory now from time to time, don't we? But it's not glory now. It's glory then. I tell you this because as David learned to wait patiently as it took him through these Psalms to process this whole sickness and illness and the sin that's dogging him and then finally getting out of it forgiven, healed, restored, recovering. He's working through all of this. David comes out the victor, not the victim. And the difference in our lives between the victor and the victim, between one who sings a sad song or like David, one who sings a new song, is in how we view our suffering. If I look at my suffering and I say, oh, it's just hard, it's, it's not fair, it's difficult, I don't like it, well, then I'm the victim. But if I look at any suffering and say, hey, in this, I can glorify God. In this, how I deal with this, I can honor the Father. Then we are the victor. And we go about with a new song on our lips. Patience is the fourth fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 Which tells me it's something that the Spirit of Christ develops in us. Because patience, listen, patience is characteristic of the person of Christ. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. Well, I told you we were going to see Jesus. More in the words tonight. And it starts right with verse 1. The patience of Christ. The patience of Christ. For in these opening three verses we see His death. His burial, His resurrection, as Jesus waits patiently through the plan of God to be fulfilled in its entirety. Look at this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me, and He heard my cry. The Hebrew writer says that. His cries were heard because of His righteousness. Verse 2, He brought me up out of the pit of destruction. Out of the miry clay, He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. We're talking about the cross, the resurrection, the resurrected Christ. Watch this. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. People might see And they might trust in the Lord and might even be impressed with David's recovery. But fear? This describes the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ Jesus. Many will see Him resurrected, glorified, powerful, and all will fall down. Read that again with that in mind. The coming of Christ. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. I believe this is pointing us to, speaking of Jesus, Revelation 1.7, Behold, He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. David will, several times in this psalm and the next tonight, use words that are too big to be describing his life. Words that are just, they're just too big for him. David is healed. Great. David is restored. Fantastic. But people are going to see this and fear... But you see the healed, risen, resurrected Savior. (laughs) And people will see and will fear. Go on in verse 4. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which You have done. And Your thoughts toward us, there is none to compare with You. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count." Paul says in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How unfathomable His ways. Paul got it. David understood it. The wonders of the Lord. His thoughts toward us are absolutely innumerable. It will take eternity to declare the wonders of Jesus. Now, we talk a lot about hearing the Lord. The next three verses have everything to do with that, so watch. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. The word open, key in on that. It's kara in the Hebrew. And it means to dig out. My ears you have opened. You ever gotten your ears clogged and... I mean, I've had it so bad that I've had to go to the doctor and you know, they put that hose in the side of your head and they squirt and half of your brains come out in their little bowl and it's really nasty. But you can hear. And that's part of what is being said here. My ears you have opened. I was clogged up. You know, my own selfish desires, my sin, my unbelief. My ears were clogged. But, but you've opened my ear. Now I can hear you. But it doesn't just mean to dig out. Kara means to pierce. My ears, you have pierced. Well, okay, so which translation is it? Sometimes I wonder, how do the translators decide which way to go? Because there are a lot of Hebrew words, a lot of Greek words in the New Testament that mean multiple things, and you have to look, and boy, you have to sit in context to translate correctly. So what is it? Sacrifice a meal offering you have not desired. My ears, you have opened. Or my ears, you have pierced. I believe it's my ears, you have pierced. And I believe what David is doing is drawing us back to a law that is part of the hearing of God. Back in Exodus 21, verse 5, a man is a slave. He's been a slave, an indentured servant, or a slave of his master for a long time. But he loves his master. And the law says there's a certain point in time when the slave is to be set free. But he's married another slave in the household. So he loves his wife. He loves his children. And according to law even when he's set free, that doesn't mean that they are. So he has a decision to make. Do I take my freedom or do I stick it out here to be where my family is? Here's how the law reads. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. It's the law of a bond servant. It's a man who says, I don't want to be free. I love my life. I love my master. I love my wife. I want to stay. And so the law was, master takes him to the doorpost, sticks his earlobe up against the doorpost, takes an awl, a sharp little nail-like thing, and drives it through his ear into the post. Now, he doesn't leave him there. <laughs> um, boss... <laughs> He, you know, he pulls it out, but, but he will put a ring in the ear, and once that ring goes in the ear, that servant is a bondservant for life. He will never go free. He will always be a servant. You know, some people see that kind of thing, and they say, wow, God okayed that? You're telling me God was okay with slavery? With indentured servitude for a person's entire life? Yeah, yeah. See, God doesn't have the issue with the idea of bondservants that we do. In fact, that's what he calls us to be. He calls you, he calls me, to be bond slaves of Jesus Christ. But why the doorpost? I mean, this is one of those odd laws in the Old Testament Scriptures, given to Moses to the people, you look at that and say, why do you have to go to the doorpost? Can't you just take like a bar of soap or something and just get it done? A banana works, I guess, if it's frozen. I don't know, I haven't pierced my ears personally myself. There was a piercing situation, but I'll talk about that another day. Why the doorpost? <laughs> what else happened at the doorpost? Passover. The Passover. Blood of the Passover lamb was wiped on the doorpost, on the lintel above the doorpost, that night before the people left Goshen, as the Lord passed over their homes, because the blood of the lamb spread there in Egypt, protected them at the doorpost. And it's also at the doorpost, interesting, and I don't believe it's coincidental, that the blood of the bondservant was spilled as well as he commits himself permanently to his master. It's a beautiful picture. The bondservant, it portrays our calling. We are those call- There used to be a song, a devotional song, that I sang growing up in youth group. Pierce my ear, O Lord my God. Take me to your door this day, for I will serve no other God. Lord, I'm here to stay. The bondservant of Jesus Christ. The blood at the doorpost. It's absolutely vital to understand this. What does this have to do with my ears you have opened? Because a pierced ear is an opened ear. A pierced ear is an opened ear. My ear will not be opened to truly hear the Lord until my ear is pierced to obey the Lord as a bondservant. Why would God waste His time speaking to us if we have no intention of obeying Him? People say, Well, oh, I can't hear from God. Well, okay, are you living in rebellion? Do you not, are, you, are you hoping that God's going to give you several options and you'll pick what you think is best? Because God doesn't hand out options like that. God says, Do you want to trust Me? you want to be My bondservant? Because once you are, then I will tell you what to do. And I will expect you to do it. By the way, what he expects us to do is perfect for us. It's exactly what we need to do. It's what makes life the best that it could possibly be when we're truly following after the Father. But the question is, are you prepared to be pierced? Are you ready to be an obedient bondservant of Jesus Christ? Paul described himself that way, Romans 1:1, 1, 1, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Peter did in 2 Peter 1:1, 1, 1, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. James in James chapter 1 verse 1, He's called himself a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, the other brother of Jesus. Jude chapter one, verse one, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. And in Revelation chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants the things which must soon take place, he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant John. You could say by definition that the bondservant is the one who has chosen to give his all all you want to give your all to the Lord it's going to take the piercing of the ear not physically but spiritually and before we begin to truly hear God's will he wants to know are you willing to obey what you hear I want your will Lord are you going to obey it I I believe that's part of the reason people have trouble hearing God because our hearts are not ready to obey and until they are He's not going to waste His breath on telling us the way that He has for us. Obedience. God's will. And understand this in the context of His grace, His love, His compassion, His mercy. God's will is not open to discussion. It's not up for debate or personal choice. When we approach the Word and the will of God as a set of options, like like a menu from which we can order, it indicates a hearing problem. Jesus never considered God's will to be optional. Keep your finger here and go on over to Hebrews chapter 5. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 in verse 5. Psalm 40 verses 6, 7, and 8 are quoted here in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5, 6, and 7. Now watch this. Hebrews 10 verse 5. When he, says, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. <clears throat> then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Now David wrote, David wrote, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but, but my ears you have opened, or my ears you have pierced the hebrew writer changes it the hebrew writer says sacrifice an offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me oh, ho, 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 critics of the bible there's one for you what's going on here technically speaking the reason why the hebrew quote looks that way or reads differently is because the hebrew writer is quoting the septuagint septuagint is the greek translation of the hebrew scriptures it was translated around 250 or so before Christ came. It was the first Greek translation, so because so many Jewish people were now beginning to adopt and speak the Greek language, as the language of, the, of the, the lingua franca of the world. And so the Septuagint was written, and when they translated from Hebrew to Greek, they translated a body you have prepared for me, rather than my ears you have pierced. So that's the technical answer. But there's a spiritual answer that I think is just perfect. Second thing to note, we noted that the patience of the Christ, this speaks of the piercing of the Christ. Jesus' body was prepared for this reason, to be pierced. David says, my ear you have opened, my ear you have pierced. And the Hebrew writer says, a body you have prepared for me... And you put them together and what you get is a body will be pierced. A body you have prepared for me to be pierced. Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. Zechariah 12, 10, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. John 19, 17 through 18 and, and 36 and 37, they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull in Hebrew Golgotha. They crucified Him there. And these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture, not a bone of Him shall be broken. And again, another Scripture that says, they shall look on Him who they pierced. The body you have prepared for me. Prepared for what? For piercing. That was why Jesus took on flesh. Everything else that you see Jesus do, His teaching, His healing, His example, His compassion, all of that, that was just natural Jesus. But the purpose was the piercing. The purpose was the sacrifice. That's why Jesus put on flesh. Now, you might keep your finger there in Hebrews 10. We may go back and refer to that again, but back to Psalm 40, verse 7, continuing on. Psalm 40, verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. And Jesus is speaking here through David prophetically. Consider Jesus' example of the body pierced, of the bondservant, of the trust that he had in the Father. It's written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. John 12.49, Jesus said, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who has sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Was Jesus not capable of representing God on his own? No, absolutely he was. But he's also showing us the exact perfect example of the bond servant. He says, I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Patience of Christ, the piercing of Christ. Number three, the place of Christ in the Word. I don't know if you've heard this before, but there are those who say, you know, people who get into Bible study are like people studying a menu in a restaurant. Sitting there and they're studying the menu and they're looking all through it and they're thinking it through and the waiter comes and they're like, yeah, just a minute. And they're just sitting there studying the menu. And they never order. And they never get the food. You've got to order the meal. You are not supposed to eat the menu. Now I understand, again, what they're trying to say is seek the Holy Spirit and avoid legalism. I get that. But it's a bad comparison. Two reasons why. The first reason is God invites you to dine on the book. This is one book where God says, I want you to eat it. I want you to feast on the book. The ingestion of the word of God is called for throughout Scripture. Les' favorite verse, Jeremiah 15, 16. He claims it, he says I can't have it, but we're fighting over it. (laughs) Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Your words were found, (laughs) and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. I'll tell you what: if Bible study, if reading the Bible, is not delightful to you, something's wrong. Now it may be the teacher, (laughs) because he's trying to skim over things, and and there's a lot of "huh." And and it may be the place that your heart is that day, or it may just be the environment. I don't know, but hey, Bible study should be a delight. It should be a thrill, not because we're just going. Okay, let's see enchilada with extra cheese. That looks all right. Okay, hamburger over here. That's no, no. You eat the menu. You eat the word. You ingest it. Psalm 19, verse 10 says they're more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honey comb. I mentioned on Sunday that you know we're reading through the Little House books. Well, Pa, I was so excited, found a honey tree. And he chopped it down, laid it over, opened it up, and he came home with buckets full of honey and comb. And I'm reading this just going <laughs> We're big honey people in my family. Huge. I mean my kids put honey on everything. You know, potatoes, peas, they just honey everywhere that they can. So when it speaks of sweeter than honey, I look at the Bible and go, Wow, this is sweet, this is good tasting stuff. Ezekiel was told to eat this scroll which tasted as sweet as honey in his mouth. Ezekiel chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. Same with the apostle John in Revelation chapter 10 verses 8 and 9. John's told you need to eat this little book. And it's going to be so sweet to the taste and it's going to be bitter in your stomach. Oops. You mean something I hear in Bible study might be bitter in my stomach absolutely. You ever walk out of here and you're thrilled at what you've heard but you also are convicted by it? Or perhaps something in the Word of God sends you home, and you look at people around you, and there's a bitterness there because they don't get it. Because they haven't received Jesus as Lord. Because they're not walking in the Spirit, and you ache for them. It can be bitter in the stomach, but it's sweet to the taste. Amos prophesied this in Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. Why a famine? Because that's what happens when people diminish the word of God. Now think about this. The prophet Amos, he came before what scholars and historians like to call the silent years between the Testaments. I've even used that phrase, not really thinking about what it meant. But that 400 year period between the last of the Hebrew prophets and John the Baptist, who was truly the last Hebrew prophet, you know, but that 400 years of quote unquote silence where God wasn't speaking, but he was speaking. He was speaking loud and clear, but the people were not dining, the people were not eating. Which is why the Jewish leaders missed Messiah. Because as Amos prophesied, there's a famine for the Word. They were not prepared. They were not full of the words of truth. Had they been full, they would have seen Jesus for who He was. Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It's written of Me. They would have read Psalm 2, the Anointed One. My King I've installed on My holy mountain. They would have read Psalm 16 the mictum of Messiah, even at the crucifixion, as if it were too late in that moment to see Jesus crucified and say, wait a minute, I read Psalm 22. He said, my God, my God, my, why have you forsaken me? That's what David said. Look at Psalm 22. A thousand years ago, this is describing Jesus. They would have known had they been dining on the Word, but they weren't. And that famine of the 400 years of so-called silence it's very similar to the famine that is happening in the world today When the word, where the Word of God is concerned. We're not eating it. Well, you are. Praise God. But so many are not eating, they're not ingesting, they're not dining on the Word and therefore they will miss what God is doing. You want to hear God? Start by being willing to obey as a bondservant, but secondly, get into the Word. This is absolutely key to hearing the Lord. There is more here than meets the ear. By the way, ancient Hebrew had no punctuation. It was just written. In fact, if you look at a lot of the ancient writings that they find, that the scrolls, if you look at the the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, they're just solid words. Solid words, right to left. Not not even breaks between words. That's just the way they wrote. That would freak us out because we're not used to it. But no punctuation. So, Well, so the semicolon wasn't invented either in the Hebrew language. So, look at verse 7. There's a very subtle difference here an implication that I believe is a wrong implication in the way we see this. Behold, I come! Semicolon. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. I think G. Campbell Morgan got it right. He translates the verse not, Behold, I come! in the scroll of the book it is written of me, he translated, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. That is totally different. I come in the scroll of the book. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, I want fellowship with you. I want to be with you and just feel you near me and spend time with you. Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. Open it up and fellowship with me. If anyone opens their heart, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, the door of the heart. If anyone will open his heart, I'll, I'll come in and we'll dine together. He said in Revelation 3, What are you getting at? The place of Christ in the Word. The place of Christ in the Word. I come in the scroll of the book. Not only is this book about Jesus, but it draws us into fellowship with Jesus. I, I want to take a little survey. How many of you have heard the Bible downplayed or diminished by respected teachers or pastors? That is tragic. That's just tragic. You know, it's the thing. The lesson I have talked about for six and a half, almost seven years now: the Word and the Spirit, both. It's not an either-or. The Spirit takes us to the Word and teaches us. The Word leads us to the Spirit and shows us Him. And we learn to hear God because we're in the Word, because we're accustomed to it, because we know what God sounds like. We know the things that are precious to Him, we know what matters to Him. This is my high horse, Les. (laughs) Listen, you don't learn to hear the Spirit by cutting back on the Bible. That is not how it works. When people cut back on the Word to spend more time in the Spirit, you end up not being able to hear as well and oftentimes getting way off track. Because there's no grounding. There's no touch point. There's no place of discernment to know what is and what is not of the Lord. Our hearts are that twisted. We'll mess it up. John 6:63 6, Jesus said it's the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing the words i have spoken to you are spirit and are life you want to hear from the lord come to dinner feast on the word open up the menu and start eating enjoy the word of god The Bible is not ink on paper, gang. The Bible is spirit and life. And the Lord invites us to come dine with Jesus, taking in the full fare of God's word. You want to hear from the Lord? Come to dinner and come to obey. Those are the two keys that we see in Jesus' words here through David tonight. Because the word of God is not a menu from which we order what we want come to obey. Verse 8, Jesus says, David writing, but it's Jesus speaking, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. And hey, it's good enough for Jesus. is good enough for me. I'm not talking about being legalistic. I'm not talking about going all the way back to Jewish customs and doing all the things in the law as if we were Jewish wannabes. I've sure, shared before I have a Jewish friend who says, I don't know why you would want to be... I grew up Jewish, he says, and you wouldn't want to be. I was set free. You know, and I see Christians going, but I want to be that. Why? I'm talking about taking in the wonder of the scriptures and feeding on the word of God and obeying what the Lord has for us as people who are saved by grace. Jesus is talking there. I delight to do your will, O God. In another prophetic passage, Isaiah writes this. Again, Jesus speaking, but now through Isaiah. Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear. Oh, that's kind of what it says. Yeah, my ears you have opened. Same thing. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. You want to hear the Lord? Come to dinner, come to obey. Verse 9. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. Oh, Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. I just love this. Number four, the profession of Christ. And the patience and the piercing and the place of Christ in the Word, and now the profession of Christ. David says, I didn't keep this healing to myself. I spoke it aloud. Now think about that. David spoke it aloud. Did you know I had an STD? Great Dave, thanks for sharing that. Um, We're going to eat on this side of the table. (laughs) Did you know I was suffering from a sin-related disease that almost killed me? David says. And guess what? God healed me. He forgave me. David is describing, declaring this out loud, speaking it in the congregation. He says, Lord, you know. You know, I blabbed on about it. I didn't hold back. I told everybody what you did, how you saved me, how you brought me into recovery. Has God brought you into recovery? Is your life now, because of Jesus Christ, completely different than it would have been without him? And if God has done that, who have you told lately? Now, I want you to understand something here. Every single one of us here tonight have a dynamic testimony. Every one of us. I, I used to not believe that to be the case. I grew up in a Christian home. Spencer and I were talking about this. I grew up in a, Spen- in a Spencer home. In a Christian home, and going to church every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, didn't have a choice. You know, and those great shows, Wonderama, came out on Sunday mornings. I never got to watch Wonderama. So frustrating. Had to go to church. It's on YouTube now. Is it really? Great. Well, have to check that out. I don't think you could probably still win the prizes that you could win back then by calling in. Anyway, I had to go to church, and I spent my whole life going to church growing up. And I started to hear about people giving testimonies. You know what my testimony would have been as a 13-year-old kid? God saved me from. Going to church. I don't know. I've been. Pretty, I stole some cookies that one time. That wasn't good. And yeah, I there was that time I used a bad word. And i I hear people talking about you know I, I didn't meet Jesus until I was you know in my thirties and, and it was after a life of prostitution and he pulled me out and saved me you know and, and I'd be going I went to church and so I shut up. You know, as a kid, I, I didn't have a testimony. I didn't have a dynamic testimony. Yes, I did. Yes, I do. Every one of us have a dynamic testimony. What do you mean by that? Look, I'm not talking about having an amazing story when Christ found you because I kind of got found and ushered in early on. And I thank God for it now. I didn't early on. I didn't understand how precious a gift that was. I thank Him for it now. It's only in my older years that I started to recognize how actually ugly and bad sin really is in my life. Here's the point. I don't have an amazing story of wandering for years in the desert of iniquity. Some of you do. And praise God, He pulled you out of the miry pit. He pulled me out as well. But what I'm talking about when I say a dynamic testimony is it's not the shock value that makes a testimony great, it's the immediacy tell me a story of what God did for you 20 years ago great I want to hear what has he done for you lately what did he do for you this week that's dynamic what did he do for you yesterday we all have a dynamic testimony of how God is working and drawing and moving in our lives if you're a servant of Jesus if you know Jesus stop and think what did he do for me last week there's your testimony, and it's dynamic because it's immediate. Now, God's salvation is static. He gives it to you. You got it. It's going to be an unchanging thing. You got it. But your testimony is going to change as your life changes. I said this before every test yields a testimony. Every struggle you go through, you turn around and say, God got me through that. Every witless act that He saves me from is a witness to His grace. David had no problem talking about it. I will not restrain my lips. I'm going to tell everybody. Yeah, I did this horrible thing, but God saved me. Praise God. No shame. Because He was saved from that. Every weakness in me is an opportunity to demonstrate His power. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, He said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's interesting. He wrote that to the church in Corinth right after he had come from Athens. Do you remember what he did in Athens? He started to speak philosophically. Acts 17. He starts talking to the Athenians about the unknown God. And he uses, and if you read Paul's sermon there, he uses Greek mentality and philosophical language, and he tries to work in the relevancy of their culture. And he gets booted out of Athens with a handful, at best, of converts, one or two people. And everybody else kind of just laugh him off. And he goes directly from there to Corinth, and what does he say? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Why? Well, the pastor's sermon didn't work last week. Try being a pastor and messing up a teaching and coming back the next Sunday and trying to get it right. Especially when you're not teaching through the Word. I so, thank God I get to teach through the Word because I, I really can't mess it up too much as long as I stick to it. you know. But back before I started teaching the Word, every week it was like, am I going to be on? Am I going to connect? What if I don't hit all the right people in the right... What if I'm completely missing and I would have a bad week and the next week it would be all the more difficult to try to come back and make it work? And this is what's happening with Paul. I just had a bad experience and now I come to you and I am weak and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching, he said, were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. And there were massive conversions in Corinth. Praise God! Paul in his weakness had a testimony that was dynamic. The cross of Christ. I mention that story to you because Paul also had his Damascus story, which he shares two or three different times in the book of Acts. The road to Damascus, that amazing conversion story. Paul, why do you persecute me? Who is it, Lord? It's I, Jesus, who you per-. Wow, an amazing, amazing testimony. But that's not what he shared to the Corinthian people. His testimony there was dynamic. It was immediate He had his Damascus story. He has his dynamic testimony. So like Paul, like David, whatever God is doing now, speak it aloud. Declare it. Profess Christ Jesus. Verse 12, David goes on and says, "...for evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head." This is the honest King of Israel. I'm a sinner And I'm such a sinner, I can't even see for all the sin. I'm submerged in my sin. He is so honest. Remember, we talked about this last week. We are sinners living in a sinful world, but He is perfect, He is righteous. So my calling is not to testify to how good I am, but to testify to what He's doing in spite of my sinfulness. Even in light of my sinfulness, His righteousness has been poured out on me. He keeps pulling me out. He keeps saving me. When I start to go down, He grabs me and I don't fall headlong. David said in Psalm 39. Now in the first 11 verses of this psalm, David writes of his recovery. But apparently something else is now going on. More problems. More evils. More concerns have popped up. Everything was great. He's proclaiming His testimony. He's sharing His recovery. And you get to verse 12 and it's like, evil's beyond number. They've surrounded me. More problems, David? Yes. How many of you, after coming to Christ, recovering from the old body of death to a new body of life, are still dealing with some of the old problems? A few of you were bold enough to raise your hands. Bunch of sinners. The rest of us, however, have moved on. We still deal with some of that old junk, that old stuff. And guess what? I don't want to discourage you, but it is what it is. It's gonna be there until Jesus comes. You're gonna have victory over sin areas of your life, especially as you turn them over to the Father. You will have forgiveness, you will have healing, you will have recovery. But just when you think you've got it all together, you're going to open your eyes and your iniquities will overtake you again. And that is what's going on in the recovery room. I remember waking up from a surgery one time, lying there on the hospital bed, shaking. I was having a a reaction to the anesthesia. I was young, I, I don't know, probably five or six years old. I had a lot of surgeries growing up. And as I'm lying there in the, in the recovery room, the bright lights, and I'm just starting to come out of it, and I hear another kid is over on a table over here just crying really loud, and it was just kind of a weird, and I was shaking uncontrollably. And I heard the word catheter used, and I said, I'm fine! <laughs> I was in the recovery room. Surgery was over. Healing had already begun. But I was still dealing with some issues. And we will still deal with issues until... Jesus calls us home, or until we leave these bodies, we're going to deal with these issues. Understand that. Know that. It will not change until our recovery is replaced by our full transformation. Verse 13 Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Which speaks, I believe, both of handing your sin over to the Lord, whatever you're struggling with, but also that constant cry in the heart of a follower of Jesus Come quickly, Lord make haste because honestly where my heart is concerned i'm ready for it to all be done i just want to be home with you jesus make haste come to my recovery and number 5 gang you might know this is the promise of christ the promise of christ second corinthians 15:52 in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. That's why we're still in the recovery room because we are mortal and we are perishable. And until that changes, problems will persist. Evils will arise. But my friends, transformation is coming. We are going to be lifted up. The promises of Christ will never fail. Verse 14, let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! (laughs) Didn't you just love God's Word? Aha! Caught you in your sin. Aha! I knew you weren't as good as you were trying to say you were. And like David, you say, You're right, I'm not, but He saved me anyway. And He'll save you. I know all your filth and sin too. (laughs) Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Gang, the Lord be magnified. That's a great principle for us in handling the struggles of life. I would call this number six, The Presentation of Christ. The Presentation of Christ. Let those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Love your salvation. Say continually, the Lord be magnified. Because, Philippians 2.10 tells us, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee is going to bow. Either in complete adoration or in abject fear. But every knee will bow and every tongue confess Him. Why not start now? Why not start praising him now? The best way to face our problems and our persecutions is not to magnify our pain, but to magnify the Lord. Oh, but my life is so hard. Praise the Lord. But you don't understand the death of my praise the Lord. Put the magnifying glass on him. Get it off of yourself presentation of Christ in your life and verse 17 he says since I am afflicted and needy let the Lord be mindful of me you are my help and my deliverer do not delay oh my God it's a wonderful psalm Psalm 41 continues in the thinking of the other three Psalm 38 39 and 40 again it's it's a set here and I would call Psalm 41 the Psalm of the sick P-S-I-C-K the Psalm of the sick but it's not like the others in this set. Watch this. Verse 1. How blessed is he who considers the helpless? The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive, and he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to health. The Spirit declares through David four things here that the Lord will deliver, the Lord will protect, The Lord will sustain. The Lord will restore to health. Right, Don? The Lord will do it. But not just for anybody. This is for somebody specific. Look at verse 1 again. How blessed is he who considers the helpless, or some of your margins say correctly, the sick. These are promises to the person who is compassionate for people who are sick. How blessed is he who considers the sick The Lord will deliver, protect, sustain, and restore him. God blesses those who are compassionate to sickness. God blesses those who are compassionate to those who are sick and dying, even, listen, even if their sickness is caused by their own sin. There are Christians in the world devoted to serving God by working with people who have AIDS, regardless of how the AIDS got into their body in the first place. Is it right, the behavior that caused the sin or the sickness? No. But what's right is the compassion of the person healing the sick. And by the way, this has got to be talking about Jesus. Jesus again? Yeah. How blessed is he who considers... The sick. Think about this time and again. The gospels tell us that Jesus was moved with compassion. Moved with compassion, he healed their sick. Matthew fourteen fourteen. Moved with compassion, he gave them their sight. Matthew twenty verse thirty four. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched the leper before healing him and said, "I'm willing, to be clean." Mark one forty one. Each and every time the compassion of Jesus is referred to, there's no respecter of where the affliction came from. Of why the person was sick. And I guarantee you, some of those people Jesus healed were sick because of their sin. And Jesus didn't look out and go, okay, good, 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 Now, good, good, bad, good, good, not going to heal you. I'm sorry, you're just going to have to suffer through... He just healed. He was compassionate to those who were sick. In John 5... There's that story of the man lying there lame by the pool of Bethesda. Every little guy, and there was a belief there that, the, that an angel came and stirred up the pools, and that the first person in got to be healed. It was kind of an old wives' tale. And the man was there, and Jesus walks up to him and says, How long have you been here? He had been there, what, 30? 30, 38 years? 38 years he'd been lying there every day. And so Jesus asks the natural question Do you want to get well? Or is this a way of life for you? Are you so comfortable in the sickness, in the ailment, that you just rather lie here? Or do you want to get well? Now, recognize this. There are masses of people around the pool who are all sick. Jesus goes to this guy. But to make it more interesting, Jesus heals him and says, take off your mat and walk. So he does. Takes off and Jesus and the guy loses Jesus in the crowd. It's on the Sabbath day, so the Jewish leaders get all upset because they see the man healed. Hey, wait a minute! Huh, this happened today? That's not right! Who did this? They were trying to find Jesus. And so the man finally runs into Jesus a little while later and says, Afterward, Jesus found him, John 5.14, in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. In other words, I know the reason that you were lame for 38 years is because of something you did. You sinned, and it caused you... I don't know what it was. Was he stealing something and fell off his bike? I don't, I don't know. But he did something. He sinned in some way. And Jesus... I call, I call this number seven, the passion. The passion of Christ. The passion. I thought that terminology re, you know, referred to Jesus on the cross. Exactly. Because that's what the crucifixion did. The greatest healing is healing from our sin, which He accomplished on the cross in His passion for anyone who would accept His sacrificial remedy, His grace, His forgiveness. Jesus is always passionate to heal. And you'll notice going through the Gospels that typically He forgave first, healed second. Because He wanted the whole person to be healed. Not just body, not just soul, but also spirit. Verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. And by the way, the word soul there is accurate. It's not ruach, which is the word for spirit in the Hebrew. It's a different word. It's the word for soul. And David is writing, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Because, man, when we sin, it messes with our minds. And the soul is the intellect, the seat of our reason. And it messes with our heads. And the guilt is there, and the shame is there. David David's saying, could you, could you heal that? We need healing here as, as well as in our spirit. He says, my enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. And when he goes outside, he tells it. In other words, he's got friends coming to him, being nice to him in person, but going behind his back and talking trash about him. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt saying, a wicked thing is poured out upon him that when he lies down he will not rise up again. People are saying, he's going to die because he's a sinner man so we're just waiting for David to die. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread he has lifted up his heel against me. Gang, David had his detractors. Most of us do at some level. But far worse than naysayers and hecklers is a friend who turns on you. A friend who you thought you could trust. A friend who was there for you. You walk through difficult seasons together, but all of a sudden something happens, and the next thing you know, they're gossiping about you. They're slandering you. They're talking about you behind your back. That is the worst kind of hurt. I can, I can handle those people who have bad things to say about me who don't know me. You know, they don't know who I am. Whatever. Say what you want. But when people I love, people who I have known to love me, start to rip on me, that's what tears us up. David is talking, I believe in verse 9, about Ahithophel. Ahithophel, who 2 Samuel 16.23, we're told the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. Ahithophel was one of David's most trusted counselors and advisors. But Ahithophel turned on David. He backed Absalom's rebellion. And he even offered Absalom to take an army. He said, I'll take a bunch of men, we'll hunt David down, and I personally will kill him. David says, my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And it tore him up. Why would Ahithophel do this? What could possibly make this guy who was so close to David, who was such a trusted friend, turn against David? And the answer is this, gang. David had wronged him years before. I don't know if David realized it or not. Probably did but probably thought that it was forgiven and bygones are bygones and we've moved on and so he continued to trust Ahithophel. But Ahithophel was holding a bitterness toward David. What are you talking about? If you trace the lineage back in 2 Samuel, you will find that Ahithophel's son was a man named Eliam. And Eliam had a daughter named Bathsheba. Bathsheba was Ahithophel's granddaughter. Ahithophel knew her husband. He knew Uriah. He knew Bathsheba. He probably had them in his home. Probably had close family relations. And he learned about what happened. But David saw to the end of that marriage and the murder of the husband and taking Bathsheba to himself and he never got over it. And so finally the bitterness boiled and seized so much it overcame him. But it's not the end of the story. Ahithophel, he betrays David. But when his full advice is not taken by Absalom, he kind of finds himself between a rock and a hard place. Well, Absalom's not taking my advice, and I've already gone against David. So either way, whoever rises to the throne, I'm in a bad spot. So Ahithophel goes home, sets his house in order, and hangs himself. What other trusted friend hung himself? Judas did. John 13, verse 18, Jesus said, I do not speak of all of you, I know the ones I have chosen. This is on that Thursday night. He says, But it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled, and He quotes this verse, He who eats My bread has lifted up his heel against Me. Psalm 41, verse 9, is Jesus talking. And Jesus draws this verse right out into the open at the Last Supper, at that Passover meal. Listen to it again, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And in this we hear number 8, the plea of the Christ. The plea of the Christ. Let me just read this to you, John 13. John 13, Jesus is there, the apostles, they're gathered around that table on that last night. and in verse 18, again he says, "I don't speak of all of you, I know the ones I have chosen, but it's that the scripture may be fulfilled. Quote "He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that you know when it does occur occur, and you may believe that I am He." Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in the spirit. And he testified and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. I think this must have been some of the hardest words ever to come out of Jesus' mouth. He knew it. He had known it for a long time. One of you is going to betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. And there was reclining on Jesus' bosom, right there up against his chest, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, close personal relationship. It was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us which one it is of whom he's speaking. Ask Jesus, John. Come on, ask him. Peter's further around the table, probably for good reason. He's around a little more, you know, right, not right next to Jesus. John's right there. Peter says, Have him tell us. And then leaning back on Jesus, John looks up and says, Lord, who is it? <laughs> and Jesus answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel, the bread, and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, the bread, what did David write? My close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread. The moment Judas ate the bread, the Bible tells us, Satan entered him. Judas was not demon-possessed. Judas was Satan-possessed. Satan did not leave this to any of his minions. He took control himself to make sure this one wasn't messed up. Satan entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said, What you do... Do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. Some were supposing because Judas had the money box, Jesus was saying, buy the things we have need for for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and John writes, and it was night. They didn't know it was Judas. I mean, it seems kind of obvious reading the word, you know? It had to be Judas. He says, okay, the next one I hand this dipped piece of bread to is the betrayer. Bonk. But you know, the disciples, they're they're worried. Is it me? Is it me? You know, Peter's over there picking his nose. No one's paying attention. Listen, the table they reclined at, uh, Da Vinci got it all wrong. He wasn't actually there, you know, to paint. He didn't line them all up. Smile, Jesus. You know, the table they reclined at was called a triclinium. Typical table in those days, a low three-sided table. Triclinium. Four or five people on pillows would lie down on each side. So you're talking Jesus and the twelve would be around this triclinium. And verse 23 tells us that John reclined at Jesus' right-hand side. The disciple whom he loved was right there. Lean back against him, ask the question. The seat to the left of Jesus was always the seat of the place of honor. The seat to the left of the the master of the feast, that was the seat of honor. And guess who was sitting there? It had to be Judas. Because for Jesus to dip and hand the morsel, it would either be John to his right or Judas to his left. Judas had the seat of honor at the Last Supper. The betrayer. And the one that Jesus called friend. Friend my friend has lifted up his heel against me my friend we always look at the evil of Judas and the fact that he was pilfering the money box and and we always kind of get this picture of this dark seedy character in the background You know, the rest of the apostles were like tell us more Jesus and he's over by the tree going yeah I don't know about that it's not the picture that the Bible gives us of Judas Judas was a trusted friend Jesus loved Judas Judas loved Jesus in a more carnal way Because when he realized what he had done and when Satan pulls out, Judas left to himself is so distraught he hangs himself, just like Ahithophel. But he was a friend. The dipping bowl filled with salt water was there to remind them of the bitterness of slavery, but that night the dipping held the bitterness of betrayal as Jesus hands the bread to his friend. And even in the garden... When Judas comes up with a contingent of Roman soldiers, Matthew 26.50, Jesus said to him, Friend, what have you come for? By the way, when Jesus dipped and handed that to him, that was an act, is an act in the Passover Seder where you say to the person, Will you be my friend? You give it to your close friend. You dip and you pass to the person who is a friend in Hebrew custom. And Jesus was saying, even to the very last second before Judas took ate, and Satan came in, to the very last second Jesus was saying, Judas, will you be my friend? Only Judas and Jesus knew what was going on. And Judas didn't know Jesus knew. But Jesus is saying, you don't have to. You don't have to betray me. Will you be my friend? Judas friend, what do you come for? And they came and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him and he was betrayed. Jesus is here. Jesus is here in the Word. He's here in the Psalm. He's speaking. His Spirit is telling David things to write and say. Why? So that we would read it and go, He is God in the flesh. Only God could have said something a thousand years before it happened and then walked it out in front of our very eyes. Only God. People say, I'm not sure if Jesus is really God. I mean, aside from calling Himself that and being called that by Peter, Paul, John, the apostles, we have so much proof of the divinity of Christ right here. verse 10, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. Resurrection. That I may repay them. Ouch. But that repaying is good or bad. Behold, I'm coming, Jesus says in Revelation 22, and my reward is with me to recompense to all people for whatever they've done. I've got a reward to give as well. Raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased or favored toward me, because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. You set me in your presence forever. Number nine, final one to jot down, it's the prevailing triumph of Christ as this section of the Psalms closes out. The prevailing triumph of the Christ. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And with these amens, book one is finished. And you'll note this with each of the five books, you know that the book is finished because they will either end with amen and amen or with hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah and amen are the two universal words across every tribe, tongue and nation on the planet. Those two words are in every language. Amen, hallelujah. My kids came from Ghana. They speak Frafra. Well, Ana Marie does. David doesn't really speak anything right now. But Anna Marie and Naomi can still speak a little bit of Frophra. You know what the word for Amen is in Frophra? Amen. Mm -hmm. You know what the word is for hallelujah? hallelujah? Hallelujah. Amen and hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for fellowshipping with us. And thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you, Jesus, for for sharing Yourself. And not only Your triumphs and Your wonder and Your glory, which is obvious, but thank You, Lord, for showing us Your patience as You went through trials and hardships and difficulties. As You were patient to walk out in the flesh 33 years of life to the completion of God's plan. Thank You, Jesus, for even sharing with us Your brokenheartedness at Your betrayal. You are all the more God to me tonight and, Lord, You are all the more human because I, I get it. You know what it feels like to be hurt, to be betrayed. You know what it feels like to go through human anguish and sorrow. And Jesus, I pray if there's anyone here tonight who is sorrowful today, who is anguished in spirit, who's been hurt by a friend or a loved one, that they would find comfort in Your understanding. And peace, Lord, in Your compassion. Father, I thank You for the testimony that You've given us, the witness, the dynamic experience of seeing You at work every day. And Lord, if there's anybody here who has trouble seeing that, has wondered what You were doing, Lord, I would ask that You'd open their ears as a disciple that You would pierce our ears with obedience and draw us into Your Word that we might hear and see better and know what You're doing in every moment of our lives. Father, thank You for the blessing of Your Word. Thank You for Your Son, Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.